Our uh, scripture reading this morning comes from Deuteronomy 17, 14 through verse 20. Laws concerning Israel's kings. When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me like all the nations that are around me. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law, approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read it, read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment, either to the right hand or to the left, so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. This is God's word. If you'll go ahead and find your Bibles again, or you can, you're welcome to use the Bible in the rack in front of you, and turn again to Deuteronomy 17, passage we're looking at. It's on page 161 in the Pew Bible. If you uh, make a habit of listening to preachers, uh, you may have noticed a trend that uh, two favorite authors that pastors love to quote in their sermons are C.S. Lewis and J.R.R. Tolkien. Uh, I did a quick search of my own sermons since I've been here to find that I've referenced Lewis five times and Tolkien six times just in the two and a half years that I've been here. But there's a good reason for this and and a good reason I bring up Tolkien in particular this morning. It probably has something to do with my own lack of creativity, uh, that I keep going back to the same sources. It certainly has nothing to do with having seen The Desolation of Smog twice this week. And for what it's worth, as the book is, as you might imagine, better than the movie. In fact, I'm not sure which book they were reading when they wrote the film, but that's an entirely different sermon. Um, but I read a, a really good article last week by Tony Ranke called The Allure of Middle-Earth. And he's asking the question, what is it that draws millions of readers year after year uh, back to this book that was written over 75 years ago? What is it that keeps drawing readers back? What is it that draws millions of moviegoers to go watch this story, to enter into this imaginative world again and again? Ranke writes... Partly, Tolkien's enduring popularity can be explained by the way he artfully touches the greatest themes of our collective experience of this world. Tolkien draws on the themes of glory and majesty and kingship, 
on a massive scale in The Lord of the Rings and on a smaller but no less significant scale in The Hobbit, we encounter the longing for the right king to emerge from the shadows and to recapture his rightful empire, an ancient yearning older than mythical kings like King Arthur. I think Ranky's onto something here. An ancient yearning, not just for any king, but for the right king. It's the same yearning, I think, that draws us into the drama of Christmas every year. Not the jingle bells and pretty presents part of it, but the clash of kingdoms, the opposing claims to the throne, a longing for the right king to come forth and to establish justice and peace and lasting joy for all the earth. It's an ancient yearning that I think climaxes in the Christmas story, but it's much older than that. If you were with us two weeks ago, we saw how this yearning goes all the way back to the beginning of history in in Genesis and God's promise of a king who will reclaim God's royal vision for his creation and do that through a covenant promise to Abraham and his descendants. It's what we looked at in Genesis 17 two weeks ago. Our passage this morning picks up on that story and on this ancient longing and, and fills it out This longing not just for any king, but for the right king to come. The king of whom God approves. The king that we've been looking for. And so let's look at Deuteronomy 17 this morning and think about this longing for our king. Let's pray together first. Heavenly Father, we do ask that you would be with us this morning and that you would be honored. Lord, all of the singing all of the music, all of the prayers, everything that we're doing is because you are a worthy king. And so, Lord, we ask that we would see you more clearly in the pages of your word, that you would be at work in our hearts by your spirit to open our eyes, to give us ears to hear, and to change our hearts as we gaze upon you. Would you do that in us this morning? Would you be glorified? In Jesus' name, amen. Deuteronomy is the fifth book in the Old Testament. Uh, we're stepping out of the book of Matthew, which is what we've been going through regularly, and looking at, during Advent at some of the Old Testament stories that prepare the way for the king that we meet in the pages of Matthew. Uh, but if we fast forward from the promise to Abraham we saw a couple weeks ago uh, and, and come to Deuteronomy, Israel has already been to Egypt and back, uh, but They have not yet entered into the land that God promised. They've been rescued from slavery, but they've been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years because of their disobedience and their disbelief in God and his promises. And now we come to the book of Deuteronomy and they are standing on the threshold ready to enter the land. And as they do so, Moses stops and he goes back over the covenant that God made with them 40 years ago at Mount Sinai. He rehearses the covenant to apply it and to prepare them for entering into the land as God's special people. And our passage this morning is part of a larger section where Moses is going over the stipulations for Israel's different kinds of leaders. So judges and priests and prophets and, as we're looking at, kings. So look again with me at Deuteronomy 17, 14. Again, that's page 161. If you're using the Pew Bible, Uh, Deuteronomy 17, verse 14, 
When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. So at this point in the story, Israel doesn't have a king yet. They, they've been led by prophets, they've been led by priests, by judges, by elders, but they do not yet have a king. And so Moses here is anticipating the day when they come into the land and they decide, we're going to set up a king. We want a king. The same kind of government structure that the nations around us have. Now, God does not command them to do this, but he does give them permission to do it. He says, you may indeed set up a king over you. Now, if you read ahead, when that day actually comes in 1 Samuel 8, it's not quite the pretty picture we might hope for. Uh, Israel doesn't ask for the kind of king that God has in mind. They want the kind of king that's going to make them like the nations around them and not like God's covenant people. They want a king who will be for them their strength, their security, their glory, which are things that only God was to be for Israel, his people. And so their request for a human king when they actually get around to giving it is in effect a rejection of God as their true king over them. But what's interesting, incredibly interesting, is that here in Deuteronomy, is that God, knowing that's going to happen, God who claims already to be their king in Deuteronomy 33, does not prohibit them from setting up a human king. The problem is not with the office itself, but with what people do with that office. We saw in Genesis how God has already promised that they would have a king. And so God has actually woven into his people this longing for a king. He already promised that they would one day have one. In fact, the, the realization of his promises will eventually require one. We saw that a couple of weeks ago. Israel was made to be ruled by a king, one who will shepherd them, one who will guide them and protect them, who will bring about God's promised blessings on them, who will make right everything that's wrong in this world. In this world, So God does not despise their longing for a king. Instead, he acknowledges it and then gives them instructions with how to handle it. What do you do with that longing when the day comes that you want a king? And this longing for a king is not just true for ancient Israel. It's true for us today, whether we realize it or not. We, we probably don't use that kind of language uh, when we describe it. But if you think about it, we all recognize that this world does not work the way it's supposed to. Everyone can, can see that in different ways. Death, sickness, poverty, betrayal, heartache. It's not the way that it's supposed to be. We all long for something better, for someone to come along and bring order to what's messed up in this world, to establish peace and joy. We long for someone to do that, to bring healing and peace. And whoever or whatever it is we look to to bring that, that's what we're treating as our king. And it can take all sorts of shapes, but that's functionally what we're looking to that person or that thing 
to do to be our king over us, to protect us, to guide us, to restore our fortunes, to to give us identity and significance and glory. Whether we're trying to play that role ourselves or we're looking to someone else, we were all made for a king. And again, that's one of the reasons why, why Tolkien is so enduring in his storytelling, why we're so drawn to his works, this longing for a king. It's one of the ongoing themes throughout uh, his stories. In The Hobbit, one of the reasons that the Misty Mountains are such a dangerous place to pass through is, quote, that's a place where no king ruled. There was no order. There was no justice in that land because there was no king there. Toward the end of the third volume of The Lord of the Rings, it's, it's interesting. I'm just finishing reading this to Joshua right now. We have like a chapter and a half left. But what, I, what struck me as I'm reading it is that the announcement that gives joy and hope to the land is not the ring has been destroyed, but that there's a king in Gondor again. That's the word, that's the message that goes throughout the land that people are taking hope in. There's again a king on the throne in Gondor, and he's coming. And so we we read those passages and we resonate with that fear of the absence of someone in charge, and we resonate with that joy of seeing him return. As Boston College professor Peter Kreef writes in his book, The Philosophy of Tolkien, he says, though we do not have kings in America or want them, our unconscious mind both has them and wants them. We all know what a true king is, a real king, an ideal king, an archetypal king. He's not a mere politician or a soldier. And something in us longs to give him our loyalty and fealty and service and obedience. He's lost, but longed for. And will someday return like Arthur or like Thorin or Aragorn. We have this longing for a king, but not just any king, not just any king will do. When it comes down for it, we long for the right king, you know, the one to whom the the throne truly belongs. The dragon smog may claim to, quote, be the real king under the mountain, as he boasts. But he's a usurper. His, his reign brings nothing but death and destruction. We need the real king. Only Thorin has the right to rule under the mountain. And not all, and all will not be well until he does. And, and so we have the same longing in real life. The longing for the right king. The one we can trust in. One better than Thorin who, who has the authority but lacks the character in that story. We long for a king that we can look to. We long for the king that God approves of. And so in Deuteronomy, after he gives them permission to set up a king for himself, he then gives them restrictions on who can fulfill that role and then requirements for what their rule should look like. Not just any king will do. has to be the right king. And so let's look first at the restrictions of of who can fulfill that role in verse 15. You may indeed set a king over you whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. You may not put a foreigner over you who is not your brother. We see two restrictions in those verses. First, the king must be chosen by God. The king must be chosen 
by God. And then second, he must be an Israelite. He must be part of God's covenant people. The first restriction reminds us that whoever it is that sits on Israel's throne, whoever it is, God is still the true king of Israel. No matter what human occupies that office, unlike all the the kings in, in the ancient nations around Israel who who had supreme authority and who themselves who often put themselves up as divine in some way, Israel's king is a king under authority. He's under a higher authority, the authority of heaven. And unlike our modern democracies, uh, the people do not have the freedom to choose whomever they want to run the show. The selection of this king is not a popularity contest. God is the one who has the right to choose his king. And so that's the first restriction. God gets to choose him. The second is that he must be an Israelite. He may not be a foreigner. Now, why does that matter? Well, very simply, because Israel as a nation has been set apart from all other nations to be God's special covenant people. And if you're not part of the covenant people, you cannot lead them in becoming that covenant people and and living and honoring God as they're supposed to be. Now, the promised blessing will eventually go to all nations, but it will do that through God's covenant people, Israel. And so the king must be a member of the covenant people. Those are the restrictions of who can sit on the throne. God has to choose him and he must be an Israelite. And then in verses 16 to 20, we see the requirements for this king. What kind of king should he be? The standards for how he should rule his people. And again, there is an incredible contrast between what we typically think of today as the qualifications or the right kind of rule, or even in the ancient world, and what God calls his king to in these verses. In 16 to 17, Moses addresses the king's ambition and the measures of his success. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away, nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. As Old Testament scholar Dan Block describes, these prohibitions address three major temptations facing ancient rulers. The lust for power, the lust for status, and the lust for wealth. The impulse to acquire many horses was not a matter of really enjoying an afternoon ride and just needing an extra selection. It was about amassing a cavalry for himself. It was about power, war power to be exact. And there was a temptation amid building this king's army to functionally undo God's saving work and sending his people back to Egypt where they could get more and more horses But God will have none of that. Israel's security does not rest in the military prowess of her king. It rests in the sovereign power of her God. And God wants to keep that distinction clear. And so this king may not amass for himself a cavalry. He may not be driven to power in that way. Especially at the expense of God's saving work. Or at the expense of the people whom he's supposed to be serving. 
Similarly, the impulse to acquire many wives was likely more than for just uh, more than for just pleasure, but a matter of political alignments and international status. So marrying the, the neighboring king's daughter, one, that made you look pretty good. And two, it was a way of forming a bridge between those two nations, a bridge over which economic resources might travel or military protection and, as often was the case, foreign gods along with them. And, you know, when, when Moses describes uh, the problem with a king collecting many wives for himself, among the numerous problems there are with that, that's the one Moses is concerned most about, lest his heart turn away. And there's no greater example of that than David's son Solomon. In fact, Solomon was over three on these three requirements. Uh, he had 40,000 stalls of horses uh, for his chariots. He, his annual gold intake was about 50,000 pounds. Put that in today's market, you're looking at $960 million. And, uh, but his ultimate downfall, according to 1 Kings 11, were his foreign wives. 300 of them, along with 700 concubines, whose gods Solomon began to follow and worship alongside the true God. His heart turned away. And lastly, God's king should not collect for himself excessive silver and gold. It's not that he can't save money uh, or have some money or even some horses or, or be married. It's greed and selfish ambition that God is guarding against. It's the stuff that unfortunately dominates most people in political power. It's the greed and selfish ambition uh, of acquiring many horses for himself or many wives for himself or money for himself. Do you notice the repetition in those verses? This is all about the king himself, not about his people and ruling them well, not about God and honoring him. What God is warning against is the selfish ambition where a king puts himself above his people and begins using them instead of serving them, which is rebellion against the true king in heaven. And so God's king has prohibitions. He may not use his throne to amass power, women, or wealth. Uh, three major temptations then and today. So, so what is it that's going to keep him from that kind of selfish ambition? How is he going to know how to walk in the way that God requires, how to be the right kind of king, the king we're looking for? Well, as verse, verses 16 and 17 told the king what not to do, verses 18 to 20 tell him what to do. He is to live and rule according to God's word. He's to live and rule according to God's word. And God's people should be satisfied with a king no less than one who does that. Verse 18. And when he sits on the throne for his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests, and it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life. Why? That he may learn to fear the Lord his God. By keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. 
that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers and that he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. So instead of taking stuff for himself, he is to write for himself a copy of God's law. And in this context, that's most likely talking about Deuteronomy 12 through 26. And he's to write that copy under the oversight of the Levitical priests who are going to ensure the accuracy of it. And and so that he can keep it with him all the days of his life and, and read it all the days of his life. God's king is a king under authority. He does not have supreme power over Israel. He is a king under God the king. And He's under the authority of God and of God's word. And so he must know the word. The whole point of writing it out is that he would become a student of the word, that he would learn it and know it well. He must read the word. He's supposed to take it with him wherever he goes and read in it every single day. And it's in faithfully reading God's word that he learns how to be the right kind of king to walk in reverence before God. So to fear God and to recognize that God is God and not the king. The king is not God. To walk in humility before his people, not lording himself over them, but serving them humbly. God's king is not above his brothers and sisters. And he is to read God's word that he might obey God's word, to do what it says, to walk with integrity not turning to the right or to the left, but being an example and a shepherd for God's people whom he serves. God does not just want any kind of king over his people. He wants a reverent king, a humble king, an obedient king, a king who recognizes God as God and who serves his purposes instead of his own. Only that kind of king is capable of leading God's people in righteousness. Only that kind of king is truly worthy of the throne. And it's interesting, as as you go on reading through the story of the Old Testament and looking for, so who is it that's going to play this role and fulfill this role as king, these verses that Moses lays out here are the standard against which later kings are evaluated. In David's parting words to his son Solomon, he says, Be strong and show yourself a man, And keep the charge of the Lord your God, walking in his ways, keeping his statutes, his commandments, his rules and his testimonies, as it is written in the law of Moses. That thing you're supposed to write out and keep with you and read in it every day, that's the standard. And you need to keep to it that you may prosper in all that you do and wherever you turn. David points him back to Moses, uh, to the law of Moses. But unfortunately, as we noted earlier, Solomon ultimately fails to hold those standards. And so does his son Rehoboam. And so does his son and and every king of Israel and Judah in some way or another. None of them are the king that Israel needs. None of them fulfill that ancient longing. And neither do any of our leaders today. Now, it's interesting to the rhetoric of every political race. You know, it's promises of a new era, a new day, a new hope wherein wrongs will be righted and prosperity will flow to everybody. You know, 
As Barbara Walters admitted this week in an interview, she thought Obama was going to be, quote, the next Messiah. Her words, that was the level of promise and that was the level of expectation and hope. And yet, regardless of of what side of the aisle you're on in those questions, every human leader and every term is marked by failed leadership, broken promises, disappointment. Pastor and author Tim Keller says, we have to have democracy because human beings are so sinful that none of us are really fit to rule. But we need a king. We were built for a king. And so we look for one. We look to our parents. We look to our bosses. We look to you know, icons in our field, the people we really want to be like someday. We look to a boyfriend or a girlfriend or a spouse, someone who's going to make this world right for me again. We look to church leaders. We look to celebrities, to athletes, to cultural uh, heroes. We look inside. We look to religion. We look and we look, driven by what Keller calls a memory trace in the human race, in you and me, of a great king. An ancient king, one who did rule with such power and wisdom and compassion and justice and glory, like the sun shining in full strength. We know we were built to submit to that king, to stand before and adore and serve and know that king. That's what the Bible says. And he continues, if you don't find the real king, you'll create a false one and he'll poison your life. The Bible says there is a king above kings. There is a king behind the kings. There is a king beneath all the myths. Even the greatest kings are just dim reflections of that memory trace in us. We need the right kind of king. A king of whom God approves in his word. And there is only one king capable of fulfilling that standard and accomplishing God's purposes in this world. And his name is Jesus. And that's the drama of Christmas. That's what draws us in. The hope and the joy and the peace of Christmas. That the one king, the true king, the king of kings, has finally come. One chosen by God from before the foundation of the world to be his servant. He's a king whom God must choose. An Israelite a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Judah in the house of David, a king who will not exploit his people for selfish gain, but who lays his life down to serve his people, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. A king who became like his brothers and sisters in every way except for sin, that he might give his life as a sin offering to rescue them. A king who not only obeys God's word according to the standard, but who fulfills God's word. All the hopes and promises of the law and the prophets are met in Christ. He knew and modeled for us what it means that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. Here is a king who keeps God's word, who obeys his father perfectly. Jesus is the only king capable of meeting God's standards and fulfilling God's plan. And it's only through our surrender to this king, 
our surrender and our submission to him that we find what we've been looking for. All of these longings, all of these hopes, the life that we were made for, the beauty, the love, the the security, the satisfaction, the majesty, the glory that we've been looking for, all of it is in this king, being united with him. Here is one powerful enough to set right all that's wrong in this world. Here is one merciful enough to set right all that's wrong in your heart. The brokenness, the sorrow, the sense of failure, the sinful rebellion, the, the, the treasonous plot to pull God from his throne and put myself in his place that I go through in my heart every day, the greed, the anger, the resentment, the lust, the loneliness, the shame, the self-loathing. Here is a king able to bring restoration and healing to everything that is wrong. The hands of the king are the hands of a healer. And for Jesus, that healing comes through his cross and resurrection. Jesus became like us. True God took upon himself true humanity, fully God, fully human. He became like us that he might do for us what we could never do for ourselves. He took our sin, made it his. Our weakness made it his weakness. Our rebellion and made it his. So, so the true king took the place of the traitor so that he could pay the penalty we owed in full through his blood on the cross and turn traitors into children of the king. It's incredible. He calls us to trust our lives to him. He doesn't ask us to make it up. He doesn't ask us to sort it out ourselves or to try harder or to to do more good things than bad or to become a better religious person or anything like that. He asks us to come to to him in brokenness, in faith, in repentance, and to put the whole weight of our hope on him, our king. And so as we celebrate Christmas, I want to ask us the question, is Jesus your king? Is he your hope? Do you approve of the king that God approves of? Is he your hope, not just for for getting out of hell, but your hope for whatever way hell shows itself in your life today? Whatever way that life takes a wrong turn or goes bad or, or sin just flares up in your heart, is he your king to rescue you from that as well? To trust in him? Is his grace sufficient for you? Does he own your allegiance? Is your longing met in this king? Tony Ranke writes, We are drawn to Middle Earth by this swelling, ungratified longing for the day when the true king will return to evict the vile dragon and reclaim the land he has in reality always possessed. And we're drawn to the drama of Christmas because it tells us there is an answer to that longing. There is a king who has come and who will come again. The king that we've been looking for. And in him and only in him will everything sad come untrue. Only through this king. Let's pray together.
Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have not left us alone to navigate this world by ourselves. That you made us, you rule over us as king and you sent your son to be that king and that savior. And Lord, we confess that there are parts of our hearts that really don't like that. There are parts of our hearts that really wish we were in control, that are afraid to acknowledge your authority because that means that that we're not king. And in our sin, that's what our treasonous hearts want more than anything. So God, rescue our hearts. Continue to show us who you are in your glory, in your beauty, in your majesty, in your rightful power and authority. And Lord, give us hearts that long for you to make things right. Give us hearts that trust you to do that. And Lord, remind us that you have proven both your authority and your love on the cross. When your son came as a babe, it was all pointed to the cross and the resurrection. That is not just the hope of Easter, it's the hope of Christmas as well. For without Easter, there is no salvation. And so, Lord, may we, as we celebrate, cast our hope on your son, who is the king we've been looking for, who is the king we need, the only one able to make right what's wrong in our lives in this world. May he be our joy, the joy of every heart here today. We ask it in his name.